I was going to say good afternoon, but I think it's good morning now. Is that right? Still good morning. And by the time I finish, it'll be afternoon. <laughs> and if you're not careful, it'll be really afternoon. <laughs> I'm Siang Yang Tan. I'm glad to be here. Uh, this place has special uh, memories for me because um, I was here uh, to teach at Ontario Bible College um, some years ago, 1983 to 85, and I had got a copy of your Tyndale magazine and saw the 120 years just right before me, especially Brian Stiller's report. Brian Stiller is a very good and close friend of mine. And during the time when you guys were negotiating for the new campus, you know, I was here to teach a class, and right then and then he brought me to see the campus, and it was just wonderful. And you all don't know all the details and all the background stuff, but uh, this is an amazing provision from the Lord. And you guys got it at a really, really good price. Better stop there. <laughs> um, so today I'm glad to be asked to share the Word of God with you. And uh, I want to preach from Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. And um, I want to talk about the secret of transforming power. In Jesus' life, in the life of his disciples, as well as in our own lives as we follow him today. So let's pray before I look into the Word of God. Dear God, thank you for uh, what was OBC, OTS, and now Tyndale University College and Seminary, for the way that you've guided this place throughout 120 years of its history. Truly great is thy faithfulness, and amazing is your grace. We say hallelujah, we say praise the Lord, we say thank you, Lord. And may your blessings continue to rest upon the people and this place that, Lord, you will be glorified even more in the years ahead. As they move to the new campus, we pray that you'll sanctify that place, and this will be the special training ground for many generations to come, as you've done so in the last 120 years. And today, as we look into your word, O oh God, we ask that, Spirit of God, you will anoint the preaching and teaching of your holy word, you will break the, uh, the bread of life to feed our souls and to transform us. They will hear you in your word, that we will obey by your grace and power, and we surrender ourselves to you. And thank you for being a God who is present with us. Even when we feel you most absent, you're still there with us, doing your deepest work in our hearts. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I will read first the um, few verses in this text. Um, in uh, verse 35 of Mark chapter 1, I'm reading from the NIV. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. I've been preaching for about 40 years, and I usually don't like, uh, as a preacher, uh, the practice of many other preachers, three-point sermon, alliteration, okay? Because oftentimes we try to fit the text into the alliteration of the three points rather than fit ourselves into what the text says. However, today, I'm going to do what I don't like. <laughs> I'm going to use alliteration. I have three Ps for the three main points of this text because it fits the text. What's the secret of transforming power? How did Jesus go about in his life on earth, to cast out demons, to preach the kingdom, to bring people to himself, 
to heal the sick, to feed the thousands with five loaves and two fishes, and so on and so on. What was the secret of the transforming power in Christ's life and ministry? And what is the secret of transforming power in your life and in my life today as we follow Jesus as his disciples? And the secret of transforming power here is the first P of prayer. And that power that comes from God, from the Holy Spirit, through prayer, gets then released into the P of proclamation of the word, of the gospel. And then the P of power ministries, or casting out of demons. So we're going to look at that a little bit more. First, verse 35, I usually go verse by verse. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he was alone with God, where he prayed. Now, some people take this verse and apply it in a very legalistic way. Uh, some people say that this is the biblical basis for the morning watch. You need to get up very early in the morning while it's still dark to have a quiet time and to pray. You cannot be too late and you cannot be in the afternoon, cannot be in the evening. I don't think this is what the verse means, okay? It's just that in this particular context, Jesus got up early in the morning. I also have some of my charismatic Pentecostal friends who are very anointed uh, prayer intercessors, you know, and prophetic intercessors. And many of them, not just here in, well, I'm in Canada now, but, or California, or even Singapore, my country of origin, many parts of Asia that I travel to to speak, you know, uh, in different times of the year. Uh, many of them tell me, not just one or two, or several of them, probably a dozen or more, that they tend to be awakened by God around 3 a.m. There seems to be something sacred or sacrosanct about 3 a.m. in the morning. They get up, they get stirred by the Spirit of God, and they go into an hour of intercessory prayer, and hopefully they go back to sleep. But as a psychologist, as well as a pastor, I do not advocate getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning all the time. Because you and I need our sleep. And the sleep research shows that we need at least seven to eight hours of sleep a night in order to function properly and to have good cognitive functioning, memory functioning, and so on. And people sometimes try to, to work as hard as they can, and then people tell you, do not try to just work harder. Try to work smarter. And one of the ways to work smarter, not just harder, is to have more sleep. You know? And most of the time when we're under stress, many of your students here, you know, and faculty the same, and staff, we all work really hard. And the first thing that goes is our sleep. Okay? And that's not very wise. So very quickly, just a, I know my talk is not on sleep, but we need about seven to eight hours of sleep a night. And Jesus, remember one time in another part of the Gospels, right? He was in the boat, remember? And the people were all getting uh, anxiety attacks, <laughs> panic attacks over the, uh, the storm and so on. And he was what? Fast asleep. Hmm? When Jesus was tired, he slept. In this particular context, he got up in the morning. But it doesn't have to be 3 a.m. And I'm glad that in my life, although I also have some gifts of intercessory prayer, uh, God very seldom wakes me up at 3 a.m. Okay? And He might make, him up, make, make me up at other times. And it's okay to pray in the afternoon or late in the morning or at night. Okay? It doesn't really matter. We're all different personalities with different biological clocks. And so the Lord will cue us and remind us to pray when it's time. But the key point here is that Jesus did go to a solitary place where He prayed. And you all know about spiritual disciplines today. You know, they've become you know, very well known through the works of, and writings of Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, who, the Lord, whom the Lord took home last year. You know. And so we really are all grieving the loss of Dallas Willard. I've been um, privileged to be um, uh, associated with the Renovari ministry with Dallas Willard and Richard Foster for over 20 years now. So one of the highlights of my year is that every year, for about three days, we go into retreat as a ministry team and board. Uh, somewhere in Denver, Colorado, or close by, sometimes in uh, Colorado Springs. And all these years with, with uh, uh, time hanging out with these very uh, precious men and women of God who really love Jesus, 
these times have really blessed my own heart. And so you all know about the spiritual disciplines and the need for us to go into solitude and silence on a regular daily basis and sometimes to take a, a special retreats of a day or two just to be alone with God. This is the secret of transforming power because God has called us to be out there as Jesus was. You know, when we follow Jesus, we'll never be flaky and lazy, but we must also not be crazy busy or driven. Jesus was never driven. He was busy but never driven because of this secret. He had time in solitude, in silence, and in prayer, in communion and union with the Heavenly Father and also the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed times like this on a regular daily basis and sometimes prolonged periods of time in the wilderness praying, you and I also need times like this. And prayer is the key because prayer connects us in union and communion with the community of the Trinity. Prayer is our lifeline to God. And that's why it cannot be replaced by anything else. So it's very important for us if you want to do ministry that is fruitful, that's faithful, not successful necessarily, but faithful and fruitful ministry, then we need to engage into this discipline of prayer. But not in our own self-effort. See, the secret S in spiritual dynamics and spiritual life is not the S of self-effort or self-improvement. That's the way of the world. The way of Jesus is not by self-effort or self-improvement. If we can do self-effort and do self-improvement, we do not need Jesus. The way of Jesus, the way of the cross is the S of surrender. We need to come and surrender ourselves to the Lord. And as we sung, confess, be broken and humble. You know, um, in um, uh, a little example of um, uh, an illustration that uh, an elder in a church in, in, in London, Ontario, where I lived for a few years before I went to uh, the States, before I came here to, to Toronto, one of the elders of a church told me uh, uh, an illustration that I think um, I will use today. He said, you know, Siang Yang, one of these days when you preach all over the world, just share this with people. You have my permission, so I'm sharing this with you. You know, here in Canada, we use English that is a little bit more British, I think. Huh? And I've been living in uh, the LA area in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary, you know, and my church is in Glendale, where I pastor as well, um, for about 30 years. I've been away about 30 years from Canada. I'm both a Canadian and American citizen, okay? So um, anyways, in, in the United States, we say, I can't do it. C-A-N apostrophe T, right? I can't do it. But I'm not sure here about Canada, but if you follow British English, and in Singapore where I grew up, we follow British English, we say, I can't do it, right? I can't do it. No, I can't do it, you know? Would you like to have a cup of tea? <laughs> I can't do it, okay? Yeah. And that is the illustration. I can't do it. When you and I come to the point in our lives and we are able to acknowledge before God with all sincerity and humility and appropriate healthy and holy brokenness, I can't do it. Then at that moment, God will use you and transform you into a can't do it. C-O-N-D-U-I-T. Did you get it? Yeah, maybe it's... I can't do it. If you want to be a conduit for God, if you want to be a channel of blessing, if you want to be someone that the Holy Spirit can work in and through to touch people in this world for Christ and to bring many people into the kingdom of God before it's too late, before Jesus returns again, then you and I have to be conduits. Can do. It's not a good attitude for a Christian. I cannot do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. The all things there is not unconditional, by the way. I hear many Christians... I suggest that text and say, I can do all things, anything, through Christ who strengthens me. Anything I want, I can do through Christ. That's rubbish. That's not true. Look at the text in the context. I can do all things that are according to the will of God, including learning to be content in all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has to be according to the will of God. Okay? So I can do, but only through Christ. By myself, can't do it. 
We all need to get to the point of acknowledging before God humbly. I can't do it. And then God says, good. Now I can do it in and through you. You will now be my can't do it, conduit, and channel. And how do we get to that point? It's through prayer. When we spend enough time with God alone in prayer, the Holy Spirit humbles us, He breaks us in wonderful, holy, and healthy ways, and He fills us with His love, His presence, His anointing, His gifts, His truth, and His fruit, which is chiefly agape love. Then we can go out into the world as Jesus did to touch the world for Christ, to build up His kingdom, not our own kingdom. You know, there's another, uh, uh, many parallel verses to, uh, to Mark 135. Uh, another one is Luke uh, 5.16. In Luke 5.16, if you look at the context and the text carefully, you'll find that Jesus was very busy with his disciples ministering here and there. And then this verse pops out of the blue. They were busy doing a lot of good things. And then suddenly, you read this verse, but Jesus withdrew himself into the wilderness, a solitary place, alone with God, and prayed. But he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. That's the secret of transforming power in Jesus' life. He knew when it was time to withdraw from people, to fast from people. Jesus never just played up to the crowds like many of us preachers and pastors do. Went to the numbers game so much in North American Christianity that it's not even funny anymore. I believe it grieves the heart of God if by building the kingdom of God, we mean building the numbers in the church. And if numbers are everything, then we've missed it. God is much more interested in the hearts of people than the numbers that come. Jesus knew the hearts of human beings. He didn't trust himself to the hearts of human beings. He knew that the 5,000 people, and, and, then, and if you include the, the women and the children, maybe 15,000, maybe 20,000, you know, 5,000 men and their women and children. So the feeding of the 5,000 is more than 5,000. Know. Jesus knew that when he fed all these thousands of people with five loaves and two fishes, okay, and, and he did a miracle, okay, and they will come back for more and more. They wanted the food. But when suffering came, when sacrifice came, when the challenge of the cross came, they all dwindled away. Even his disciples left him. See, Jesus knew. He did not play to the crowds and to please people because he knew how fickle people would be. So see what happened. Okay? He prayed in the wilderness. And then verse 36. Now, before I go on to verse 36, I do want to read to you, if I have time, a wonderful quotation from Richard Foster, who's a really good friend, and his book um, on prayer Finding the Heart's True Home that was first published in 1992. Richard Foster, when he wrote this book on prayer, he spent a lot of time in the library. I know this because he personally shared this with me and with the, the team in Renovari some years ago. He spent a lot of time in the library reading hundreds of books on prayer. And he distilled the wisdom of the ages into this book. It's an excellent book. If you haven't re uh, read this book on prayer, I highly recommend it to you. It's called Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home. 1992, it's not new. And Foster, in this book, explains 21 different types of prayer. Not just four, not just ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Not just the prayer hand, like the navigators have taught us, you know, where we uh, praise God, we thank God, we confess our sins, we pray for ourselves, we pray for others. Those are the major areas of prayer, but there are many more. At least 21 different types of prayer. I don't have time to get into that. But the one thing I want to share with you that he has shared with us personally, and he shares just very briefly in his book, is that Richard Foster, in the process of writing this wonderful book on prayer, had a vision from God. And remember that Richard Foster is not Pentecostal or charismatic. He very seldom gets visions from God. Okay? But when he does, we better pay attention because God is really speaking to him and through him. So he was in the library, almost falling asleep, tired after long days' uh, work of writing and writing. And then suddenly, 
he woke up and he saw this brief vision. He told me that it was like two or three seconds. That's all. He saw the vision of God's heart and was relevant to this book on prayer. I'm going to read this for you, to you, okay? And I quote from his book. God has graciously allowed me to catch a glimpse into his heart and I want to share with you what I have seen. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. God's heart is deeply broken. It's bleeding for you and for me. Why? Because he aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. And he's inviting you and me to come home, to come home to where we belong, to come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long, we have been in a far country, a country of noise and hurry and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home, home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. The key to this home, this heart of God, is prayer, unquote. Jesus went into the wilderness and prayed because he knew how to continue to be in union and communion with the heart of the Father, as well as with the Spirit, the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God is calling you and me today with a broken, open wound of love in his heart to come home and to spend time with him more in prayer. Not trying to pray more, but asking for the Holy Spirit's anointing and power to enable you and me to engage in deeper times of prayer so that it's not by self-effort, it's by surrender. When that happens, what will happen? Look at verse 36. A very strange thing happened. Simon Peter and his companions went to look for Jesus. When you and I spend much time in prayer, some of our colleagues and our friends in church, in church, will come look for you. And he may also say what they said to Jesus. But look at verse 37. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Simon Peter and his uh, companions exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Now, that's from the Greek. Read into it a little bit. Don't eisegete, but read into it a little bit, okay? Everyone is looking for you. What, 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 what are they saying to Jesus? Basically, something like that, if I may just paraphrase into more postmodern English, okay? Hey, dude, where are you? What are you doing praying, man? Everyone is looking for you. There's a whole crowd out there. Come on, Lord. Get with it. Let's go. They're waiting for you. The crowds are waiting for you. If you were not like Jesus... If you are like many other preachers and pastors, you would say, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I lost track of time. Remember, they didn't have watches at that time. I'm sorry, let's go, yeah, yeah. Wow, how many, how many thousand are out there waiting for me? That would be our response, not Jesus. He's always the contrarian, always the one who goes upstream against culture and the beliefs of this world. So verse 38, see Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else. Not to the crowds. Because the point about the gospel and kingdom work is not about playing to the crowds. They're fickle. They come and they go. 
You can preach to crowds, nothing wrong with that. But crowds and numbers are not everything. Let us go somewhere else. Where? To the nearby villages, the smaller towns, you see. So I can preach there also. That is why I've come. I've come to preach to smaller towns, bigger towns, doesn't matter. I have to go somewhere else. My work is not done yet. And I'm wondering, where is your somewhere else today? Somewhere else does not have to be taken literally and geographically. Somewhere else may be as close as your neighbor next door. The one who is maybe from a different ethnicity. The one who is too different from you. The one who makes you feel uncomfortable. The one who does things around that maybe even tick you off. The one who might tick, who might tick you off and be a pain in the neck for you. We sometimes have neighbors like that that we've ignored and neglected for years. We haven't even said hi to them. Maybe that's your somewhere else that Jesus wants you to humbly go and reach out to. But there's somewhere else might be another ministry in your church. That doesn't mean that you have to leave your church, but maybe another ministry. Maybe the same old, same old status quo for 20, 30 years is enough. Maybe it's time for something fresh, something new, something anointed by the Spirit. Maybe the Lord's calling you and me out of our comfort zone. And the somewhere else may be abroad. The somewhere else may be to be a missionary. I don't know. Only God knows what He wants for you and me. But we must go somewhere else and not just be in the comfortable status quo and particularly not just playing to the crowds. Jesus is something deeper. Jesus is after the hearts of people, not the numbers of people. Numbers come and go. The heart, when it's transformed by the power of the Spirit and the power of God's Word, is eternally changed. And one heart changed by the power of God's Word and the power of the Spirit of God can touch a whole world for Jesus Christ. And then Jesus tells us what he did, the other two Ps, in verse 39 as I close. So he traveled throughout Galilee, getting out of his comfort zone, preaching in their synagogues, preaching the proclamation of the Word. From prayer into preaching, sharing the gospel, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and then driving out demons. I know that starts with D, not P, but you want alliteration? So driving out demons is power ministries, okay? Jesus engaged in power ministries. He cast out demons. I was talking to my class today about how to deal with the demonic. You know, we have extremes in the Christian world. On one extreme, we have people a bit more liberal, more modernistic, scientific, whatever, you know. Oh, forget about demons, they don't exist. That is not true. Ephesians chapter 6 does not allow us to disbelieve in demons. The writer of Ephesians or Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, you know, uh, the evil forces in the high places, okay. And um, many other uh, passages of Scripture, Peter tells us that we have a, uh, an adversary, the devil, you know, who seeks to devour us like a, like a roaring lion. We have an arch enemy called Satan. Book of Revelation talks about Satan as well. But his power is limited. His leash of life is short. Jesus has already conquered Satan when he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. We have to understand that Satan is a defeated enemy who has just limited time and limited power. His power compared to Jesus is nothing and puny. Jesus' power is omnipotent, all-powerful. Hallelujah. But our power compared to Satan is nothing. We cannot fight Satan, but Satan doesn't even have a chance with Jesus. In fact, he's already been defeated. Are you with me? Spiritual warfare is not a ding-dong battle. Spiritual warfare is an opportunity for God to manifest the victory in Jesus over and over and over again. We must not be afraid of spiritual warfare. It happens all the time. Spiritual warfare is an opportunity for God to be glorified even more as the victory of Jesus is manifested afresh in and through you as you turn to Jesus in the context of the temptations and the spiritual warfare 
and win because Jesus has already won, but not by self-effort. A story has been told by people, some other people, that there was a five-year-old kid in Sunday school who was taught by a very nice and warm and insightful teacher how to handle Satan and his temptations. The next Sunday, they came back to Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher threw out a pop quiz. Satan is now at the door of your life or your heart, knocking at the door. The devil, your enemy, is trying to tempt you to cheat and to lie and to be mean. What do you do? So this five-year-old kid put up a hand and said, Teacher, I have the answer. And the teacher said, Okay, what's the answer? She said, I will send Jesus to the door. I will send Jesus to the door. And she has much more wisdom and insight than many of us. In all of our manuals of exorcism, deliverance, spiritual warfare, we've made up all kinds of human-centered methods to, to combat Satan. Our answer at age 25 or 30 or 50 or 60 is, when Satan knocks at my door, I will open the door and kapoom him, you see? And you try to do that, you are a dead duck or whatever else. <laughs> You're finished. You cannot fight Satan. That little girl is right. Send Jesus to the door, which means what? Which means that when Satan attacks me, I hide in Jesus. I go to Jesus. I put on Jesus. That's Ephesians 6. The armor of God is Jesus. Okay? And I pray in the Spirit. And I use the Word of God, the weapons that Jesus gives me. But Jesus is the one who covers me. And I pray in the name of Jesus, bug off, be gone, the evil one, you see. And his power will be crushed by the powerful name and blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So don't be afraid of the evil one. Don't be afraid of spiritual warfare. Prayer is the secret. They will lead you to proclaim the gospel powerfully and also powerfully cast out demons when you need to. This is the kingdom life that Jesus has called us to live. And it is all about him. It is all for his glory. Not my kingdom, his kingdom. Not my glory, his glory. And when we do that, we will rejoice in Jesus more. We will rest in him more. We will revel in him more. And that's what the kingdom life is all about. That's what eternal life is all about. That's what abundant life is all about. To know Jesus and through him, the community of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. And to be in union and communion with him, always. John 15, 5. Abide in me and I in you, and you'll bring forth much fruit. Because without me, Jesus says, you can do absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Even breathing is from Jesus. If he snaps his finger, you're dead. Our very breath is from Jesus. Everything comes from him. So stay in him, abide in him, remain in him, in union and communion with him. In prayer, you know, special times of prayer as well as fleshing up prayers daily, 24-7. As you walk with Jesus that way, in union and communion with him and with the Trinity, God will transform your life. And out of that will come streams of living water and transforming power from the Holy Spirit. And then we can go into the world and proclaim the gospel. And we can go into the world and crush the works of the evil one. In the name of Jesus, sending Jesus to the door because Jesus has already won the victory. So I trust and pray that we all will follow Jesus this way, make prayer the chief occupation and preoccupation of our lives. As I close, I'm going to tell you another story. I know my time's almost up, but let me take one more minute to tell a little story. As a pastor, I, as a senior pastor of my church, I bring my pastoral staff. We have a church of about 600 people and about eight other pastoral staff. I bring them to, um, I take them to uh, pastor's conferences, okay, on a regular basis. And some years ago, I was at a national pastor's convention, which does not exist anymore in San Diego, about a thousand pastors were there. And this special workshop, um, there were about a couple of hundred pastors, and I sat right in the, at the back. And this man was trying to share with us the secrets and the guidelines of how he grew his church 
roughly, okay, I'm just um, uh, kind of kidding, half kidding, but half serious here. Roughly, the numbers, you know, don't take them too literally. He grew his church from 50 to 500 to 5,000 in five years, following these five steps, <laughs> okay? So all the pastors, they're furiously taking out notes because every pastor there wants to grow their church from 50 to 500 to 5,000 in five years. And his five steps, actually more than five steps, he had 10 things on his sheet. And I looked at it. The first day, I, I had to bite my tongue and not say anything. The second day of the seminar, I had to put my hand up. And some of them, they knew I was a professor at, at Fuller, so I didn't want to be a smart aleck. But I had to put my hand up. You know why? Because on his sheet, the secrets of growing a church are parking, 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 parking. You must have enough parking. You don't have enough parking, your church won't grow. That's partly true. But you look down and then programming and then, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. Prayer was not on the list. So the second day I put my hand up. Excuse me, sir. How about prayer? This is what he said. Oh, prayer is assumed. Never, ever assume prayer. Because if you assume prayer, you will not pray. Because it's not on the list, you see. You spend all your time programming and planning and trying to increase your parking. And parking may help your church grow, but that is not biblical, spirit-led, Christ-centered church growth. Jesus is after the hearts of people. True growth, deep, with substance. That comes from prayer. And parking, God will help you with the parking. But first, we need to pray. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for speaking to us so clearly through your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us while you were on earth the secret of transforming power. None other than prayer and union and communion with the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to long for you more, to desire you more. As John Piper puts it, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. Holy Spirit of God, cause to come to pass in every one of our hearts today a deeper longing and desire for you and union and communion with you in prayer. Make us people of prayer. As Richard Foster has challenged us, may prayer be our chief occupation and preoccupation of our lives. And then, Lord, empower us to go out into the world to proclaim the word and to engage in power ministries that will repeatedly manifest the victory of Jesus over and over and over again against the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And bless Tyndale as they go into the 120th year and the new campus. Bless this place for your honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for the benediction and it will be on our way. The Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon each one of you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face of favor toward you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Thank you and God bless you.